0: Welcome to the Cup of Nurses Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Cup of Nurses Podcast with your hosts, Matt Slarch and Peter Fendero. This is a podcast where we tackle hot nursing topics and current health news one conversation at a time. Welcome, guys. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. We love you all. Peter loves you guys sincerely. We are hanging back
1: today and we are sipping on some Jack, right? Yeah, I'm straight cereal today. Your straight cereal? Straight cereal. We're having a good time. I think we're going to have some laughies today. Yeah, let's do it, man. Well, you know, while we take a quick drink here, guys, check us out on YouTube, download our episodes, join the Facebook group, all fun stuff.
0: Yeah, so we're going to be a lot more interactive on Facebook. We'll have conversation, ask you guys things, and be very interactive. So make sure you guys um, find us there.
1: Yep. What's so, today's topic, Pete? On today's episode, we're going to talk about this large study that's been done over over a decade on sugar, and we're also gonna talk about intubations, uh, emergent intubations, the process, common meds we use, the equipment, and just some more bedside stories. The bedside stories, the scary ones where we think that shit's really hitting the fan. Man,
0: shit always hits the fan at one point or another. I know. So this study, it's a giant cohort study. It's from Europe, and it had over, over 450,000 people. So this is a study from the European perspective, Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition. Um, It's a large um, study over 10 different countries in Europe, and it spanned from 1992 to 2000, right? This is where the group came from, the patients.
1: Yeah, half a million people. That's insane. Like, usually when people do studies, especially with people, it's usually like hundreds, maybe thousands, but this is half a million people. Yeah, and we
0: we usually say like, oh, this is a thousand people. You know what? I think this is really correlated to this, but this is half a million
1: people with these results. Right, and it's done over a decade, too. Like, this is a decade's worth of research. That's a lot of number crunching over there. It's pretty good stuff. And this is investigating sugary drinks, whether they have an effect on our health. And what do you think the results are with this? Well, probably, I'm sure we could guess the results. Mm -hmm. But so this study actually separated sugar-based drinks and um, artificial sweetened drinks. So that's like your, you know, no sugar, zero calorie drinks. And a study, well, let me talk about the population first. So 70% of these 400,000 people were majority women. 70% were women. Okay. Average age was 50, and then they did the follow-up um, tests or follow-up with the patients or the, the study, the follow-up with the population yeah, was 16 years, 16.4 years, which is a really good length of time. That's a pretty long study. And as we all could have guessed, the, like, the results were negative. You know, sugar's bad for you. So the results showed actually the sugary drinks, if you consume two or more glasses of a sweetened beverage, you're more inclined to dying through digestive diseases, and if you drink two or more assorted um, artificial sweetened drinks, you're more prone to getting circulatory diseases. And that's so like your disease.
0: that's like your diet soda, yeah. diet Pepsi,
1: exactly. things like that. Yeah, and they initially had this study done in 1992, and an exam re-examined the people in 2000. So out of these half a million people, four thousand six hundred ninety-three of them died. Within a six-year time frame. And those people were the ones that were drinking two plus glasses of sugary beverages or the non-sugary beverages, the artificial sweet ones. And just because
0: you think you're drinking a drink or a Pepsi day doesn't mean you, you could run away from these results because you're just as more likely. And who knows, you might be having extra like sanitary lifestyle habits that are leading
1: to being more prone to it, like smoking, right? Yeah, and actually uh, this is actually a really good study too, because even So they grouped these people into non-smokers and smokers and also people that were overweight that had a higher BMI and people that were lean. And the, the was negative, there a difference? So the negative results carried over to each group. So it doesn't, doesn't matter if you, if you smoke or you didn't smoke, you still had this higher incidence of circulatory and, and digestive diseases, which is actually pretty remarkable. So that shows that sugar is a key culprit in, in early, early death. Early
0: death, yeah. And I feel like a lot of people always have this like stigma of like, I'm skinny. I could have a pop. I'm not fat it doesn't matter if you're skinny or fat. You just have great genes that are burning fat, but yet you might be sick.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or they switch from, you know, the sugary drink to the non-calorie artificial sweeteners, and it might not be contributing as much to sugar or, or disease, but you're now more predominantly going to get sick from digestive disorders. You know, you're more prone to GI bleeds, you know, and, and intestinal health, uh, gluten, not gluten sensitivity, but this like, sensitivity in your GI tract, you change your gut flora completely, and that just leads to a bunch of disease. Like we mentioned a few times on a few episodes about the Parkinson's disease and how it's linked to, you know, GI health. And, you know, people die from that kind of stuff and it's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, and also I noticed that it makes me more hungry, so leads me to eating more because like if I eat something very sweet before I start my like 16 hour fast, I'm like it's like 10 hours and eight hours and I'm kind of really feeding some food. Like it's like my my energy levels aren't up there after having
1: a very high sugary high carb um,
0: meal exactly before i start
1: yeah and i'm sure a lot of people can relate it's like like you know your insulin spikes and you know then if you feel full you feel feel good for a little bit and then you drop back down to baseline and you feel like shit you're like damn where's the next sugar at
0: yeah and this next next topic so we're going to talk about how sugary drinks affect your body every single system gets affected in a different way which leads to like negative side effects and we can start with the top right the brain so the brain is a system where it creates memories. There's a lot of neurons and all this stuff going on, and we're not realizing that sugar is literally hijacking our good chemicals. We're we're releasing large amounts of dopamine, which explains why we kind of crave sugar throughout our day. And there's so much studies that are like linking, like met, like little um, mice, right? Or is it lab rats? Whatever you want to call them. Yeah, lab rats. That's fine for sure. today. So these lab rats are are literally choosing like sugar. Like there, there was a test that tested or, the Oreo filling compared to like cocaine and these rats were more hooked on the oreo filling and consumed it and chose it over than cocaine and just shows you how sugar hijacks our brain because it's mostly made out of sugar and it's just leading to bad negative feedback loops in the brain
1: right it just releases so much dopamine at at a certain time and it's so easy accessible or it's even more dangerous than than certain drugs in the dietary aspect like i mean obviously sugar is not as dangerous as like heroin and Crack and cocaine, those kind of drugs, but it's just so easily accessible, where it can be just as dangerous. Because you could go anywhere and buy it, and it just releases so much dopamine. And if you really wanted to, you could keep eating eating sugary foods and, and drinks, and you could always be on a dopamine rush all the time. And then you crash real hard when you stop eating it. So what do you go back? You feel like shit. So you keep eating more. When I see these
0: people like snack on like a like a fifty calorie sugar Pepsi, then they got a Twix. Then they chase it up with some chips. It's like, damn, dude, it's all sugar,
1: right? Exactly, absolutely no nutrition value at all. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize it, man. And it's it's unfortunate. But that's why we, ha- you guys, have us here, right? Right, like especially like with sodas too. It's they're they're acidic. You know, that's probably why it's more attributed to GI disorders because it, acidity. I just thought about that right mm-hmm. now, Or you know GERD happens just because you're just swallowing basic acid. And I wonder no if benefit. it's
0: linked to like peptic ulcers and things like
1: that. Yeah, That's, that is a disorder. So peptic ulcer, GI bleeds, yeah. Everything everything has to do with their GI tract issues, You know, diverticulitis, it's all it's all contributed to by, by sugar and Damn. soda.
0: And if we go down the list, we now have the teeth, right? Mm. And we kind of hear the stories all the time that your mom tells you, hey, don't eat sweets late at night. It's bad for your teeth. And it really is because back when sugar is on your teeth, it doesn't matter if you brush them regularly. This bacteria acts so quick and it starts eating the sugar on the teeth, which is like breaking down the enamel. I believe, yeah, and
1: it's just causing more cavities, guys. Yeah, it's just like quick and easy access to glucose. You know, your bacteria is there; they they want to eat, they want to thrive, and you know, their their main source is sugar. And it's just so easy to to ingest and, and break down for the bacteria, where it's just such a simple, such, simple, simple sugar where bacteria just just digest and they spread, spread like crazy, like those lab rats.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, goddamn, I elaborate. Well, that,
0: um, The next one is uh, the skin. And as we know, uh, sugar affects like this whole metabolic cascade and causes that syndrome that we talked about before in a, our podcast episode. And it causes like the skin to age faster. There's something called AGE, which is called advanced glycation and products. And literally these molecules age your skin. Um, what it exactly does, it's been shown to damage collagen and elastin in your skin. And these protein fibers that literally keep your skin nice and firm and youthful, guys. It's like the people that drink the alcohol, the people that smoke the cigarettes, and they look like they're age, aging faster and looks bad on you. Like, sugar has the same effect.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and then it's also, what's the next one? The liver. Um, you know, it's basically sugar toxicity. Your liver can be processed so much. And with all the insulin getting released, your liver gets, gets damaged. And it's not able to process all of it like alcohol. You know, we get drunk because our liver doesn't process all the alcohol yeah. at once. And that's what the effects of drinking is. Or is you those. or you hear that kids are obese, like they're like 15,
0: they have a fatty liver yeah. disease. Like, guys, how are they getting a fatty liver disease? That's usually related
1: to alcoholics, but now it's related to freaking sugar, man, and yeah. diet. Yeah, liver is your filter. It's obviously going to filter those, that sugar through everything that, that comes in, into it. And it's just, there's so much sugar there where it just gets backed up you know, and it just gets backed up and then you get liver damage, like you said, you know, fatty liver, yeah. cirrhosis, it's it's all linked together. And it's, it's very, very sad that something like this, like sugar that's been around for years and years, back then it was used as probably like as a luxury, like back in a Roman era or, you know, 1900s where sugar wasn't as accessible. So people didn't consume as much. So the effects weren't as bad compared to now where you go to Walmart, you go to a store and the main ingredient is sugar. Yeah.
0: When I was in Poland, my because, you know, we didn't have candy as often. Like, my grandma, I used to come up to my grandma's house. She used to give me a sugar cube. Like, even through the window. Like, she was just chilling in a wheelchair. She just gave me a sugar cube. Yeah. And it's funny how that was, like, a little treat for us. And that was, like, good enough for us. And now it's just accessible.
1: Right. Yeah. I say with my parents, when when they were in Poland, like, they had rations because there was still communism going on. And you had a ration. to me the ration, food, and chocolate was really expensive because no one could really get it. What, what are
0: rations for people that don't know? So, rations like is lips, right?
1: Yeah, it slips and it tells you you can get one pound of ham and like a loaf of bread because it was communism. So it was another branch of socialism, you, you could say, but very more extensive. And you could only get whatever the, the government allows you to get. And chocolate was, was very you know, hard to get because that's like a luxury. You don't really need chocolate to survive. You eat it more for like the dopamine reaction you know, just to feel good. So... They ate meat bread cheese and, and all that and sugar ch- and chocolate was a luxury. They would take one chocolate bar and there was four of them and they would just break it over to four people. Damn. They had to, like maybe once a week. And it's it's not like now where you know you get chocolate everywhere you go. That's leading to these all these unfortunate diseases. And illnesses. Yeah.
0: The next one is the heart, and sugar literally sh- whatever we don't use up as energy turns turns into like triglycerides, right? And extra energy sources. And all this extracts of sugar that's circulating in your bloodstream is literally causing like atherosclerosis. It's affecting our circulatory system. It's making our veins and arteries literally stiff and tense, less elastic, and it's leading for it's leading heart strain, right? Yeah. It's causing our heart to work harder and causes damage over time in the long run. You're not gonna it's not gonna happen in your youth, but you're more prone, just like the said, to heart attacks, strokes and all the other issues because
1: of the diet. Yeah, sugar, too much sugar, excess of sugar causes a little inflammation in your arteries and your veins, which like that causes stenosis, and you, you're eventually your heart. Atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis, Athero- atherosclerosis, and eventually you know your heart hypertrophies, and people get into CHF, you know, heart failure just because of, sh- of sugar. You know, sometimes we don't know why diabetics go into heart failure or CHF. They don't really have any kind of history of it, and you realize that they have unmanaged diabetes and their sugars are out of control everyone sees up and then that literally causes heart disease mm-hmm. it's very it's very sad like you said at a young age like it started at a young age and people just don't change don't stop and these things you can't always feel them you don't feel your heart getting bigger you feel your heart getting bigger once to a certain point where you become short of breath and you literally yeah, can't you breathe you got to come in yeah and you like the kidneys too, man. Like it's an awesome
0: organism that filters all this stuff. And we don't know that like these little cells that are filtering this urine. It, it gets damaged. And over time, like the the diabetes are literally destroying our kidney cells. Our kidneys as general. And then the kidney doesn't function as an organ properly. And your creatinine builds up. Builds up your uric acid levels build up and you got to get dialysis man and these people a lot of these dialysis patients if you if you guys think about things or ask if you're in the medical field just look at the correlation between like end stage kidney failure people on dialysis and if they have diabetes more than likely they do like Mm -hmm. and that's like one of those things that when it goes bad it sucks man because dialysis is like four or five times a week like it's a commitment man
1: yeah it's ridiculous like we said it affects your veins and your arteries but People may think those are small vessels, but they're really not. There's even smaller vessels called capillaries, and those are the first ones to go. And these organs, livers, your lungs, your kidneys, they're very capillary dense. So they're they're even smaller than, than veins, and they're the ones that get clogged up quicker, and those are the ones that get damaged the most. And once those are damaged, you know, they're so small, they don't get repaired. Right. And your body can make more capillaries, but it's hard to make capillaries when you have, have high blood sugar because you sh- your blood does become a little more thicker. I think, is viscous the word? Yes. I'm right. Yeah. And it's just hard to make those capillaries because they just get clogged back up right away. And then that leads to poor perfusion and you can't perfuse your organs as much and you get kidney disease, you yeah. get fatty liver, cirrhosis of the liver, And because sugar. Yeah.
0: And we know body weight is obviously, and there's nothing in touch about it. It's linked to type 2 diabetes. It's linked to weight gain. And there's also sexual health. And they're linking high sugar content and it has an impact with the erection. Is that what
1: I'm reading? Yeah, it's exactly. So I'm not sure what the exact term was, but uh impotent. Impotent, uh, impotent impotence. Impotence okay. is unable to see erection. So, you know, your girlfriend's having a good time, you know, and you go to bed, you can't get it up. Or maybe. you had you had that cookie before, man, now she's asking for, you know, the and D and you just can't give it. it. Yeah, you can't get it up and you can't figure it out all your testosterone's fine, all your Hormones are fine, but you're just maybe consuming too much sugar. Yeah, and add, the and then add
0: on, yeah, and then add on to it. Then you have anxiety about that issue, and it just makes it a lot yeah. worse, guys. A whole giant cascade, man. Unfortunately, stay away from your sugar, guys, Yeah. Now let's do an intro to intubation for those people that are non-nurses or students. Like, have you ever wondered about like the process about like intubating somebody, which is A.K.A. putting them on life support and putting them on a mechanical ventilation? And we're gonna discuss that process. The equipment and their little bedside
1: tails here, right? Yeah. So, so, no matter what kind of nurse you are, no matter if you're a med surge, you know, telemetry, there's going to be at one point or another where you're going to call rapid or a cold where you're going to need to intubate somebody. Yeah. It's not crazy common, but you are going to see because you're a nurse over an extensive period of time over, over years. And eventually, you are going to get hit with the need for you to help with the intubation if you're not the, you know, Main nurse, you're going to be doing something, you're going to be giving supplies. So it's good to know. And it's always good to know ahead of time before before it's too late. And then you're kind of stuck and don't know what to do when you're asking for help when everyone's busy.
0: Yeah, and that's how I started too with intubations. Like I used to always like observe them and just figure out what the heck is going on. Because at first, the whole team is working as one man. It's like the system of like, what the heck is going on? But once you get into a flow, you're an awesome,
1: effective team member and you just know what the hell has to happen. Yeah. You look at the room, this, 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 boom, boom. Right. Just like with a lot of nursing skills, intubation is a thing where the more you do it, the more you, you learn and the better you get at it. It's just one of those things that you don't see outside the hospital. It's not like playing basketball where you you know, you know could play at any kind of basketball court. This just happens in the hospital. So, you know, the more time you deal with it, the better you are going to get at it. Yeah. Don't be afraid just because your first time was bad or you were too slow. You can get better at it. Just unfortunately, it's how it works.
0: Yeah. So the reasons for intubation, did we discuss this?
1: No, not yet. Okay, so it would be an
0: obstruction, facial trauma. The patient becomes unconscious. Um, You have profound hypoxemia, usually diagnosed with like an um, arterial blood gas, respiratory failure. Um, Let's just say you're in cardiogenic shock. Um, You're on BiPAP, again, hypoxemia, and you you have to be intubated. Um, Also after surgery, sometimes you get intubated for procedures and they have a hard time extubating, so they might come to you already intubated and you're going to do the weaning process right
1: not all intubations are emergent right you know when you go get your tonsils pulled out or you go for you know um, a stem placement those are elective intubations those are done in you know in the or, or right before the or those are kind of more calm because that's when you know, those nurses are trained for that situation they've been you know intubating people, people for their whole career so that's a little bit less hectic but your bedside intubations those are usually ones that are emergent you know even though there, you are gonna have those times where you know someone's getting intubated, but it's still an emergent one. Yeah, because you still gotta hustle your it's ass So the process. Stuff. Exactly, just the process. You know, and then you know you have those patients that, like Matt said, are on BIPAP, it's just not working out. You're doing their blood gases, and they're just keeping acidotic, keeping acidotic, even even though they're they're completely with it, their numbers look like shit. You know, those are. St- you know, kind of elective emergent, you could say, because you're going to tell the patient, be like, hey, we're going to need to intubate you. So this is how, how it's going to be, but still emergent because you yeah. are called anesthesia. And the
0: family and everything that mm-hmm. happens, it looks very terrifying for them. And the kit, that's the go-to kit is a rapid sequence intubation, guys. So it's sometimes it's a different color. Ours is a little nice little case, looks like a pencil case with a red top and it has like a little clip for, you know, patency, whatever. And it has your awesome meds that you need in order to intubate.
1: Yeah, ours is like big, like one of those like construction boxes where you keep the tools at. Okay, we yeah, have that too for like yeah. the different ET tube sizes mm-hmm. and yeah, things. Same. Yeah, we, we just have everything in that box and then we just bring that box. But for us, usually anesthesia brings our, brings our own stuff. Okay. So it's pretty convenient. So what do you think are like the clinical signs of like an intubation? Well, like I said before, the blood gas is sort of acidotic. Mm-hmm. So pH is less than 7.35 and it's not, not improving, you know, bicarb is you know, compensating. So it's it's high. And your CO2 is high as well. Yeah, like so. the CO2 above like 60 and like you can tell they're very
0: fatigued or sometimes it could be drug overdoses, man. Sometimes mm. we cause it like giving too much Ativan Yeah. and or too much morphine, man. I mean, sometimes you could use a reversal agent on that, but having those EtOH patients that are just being too much to handle, like you'll intubate,
1: man, to just protect them themselves. Right. So sometimes it's based on numbers, like we mentioned, sometimes it's it's just to protect their airway, airway. like the... Uh, person is the patient isn't swelling properly or they're at risk for aspiration or they just just can't keep their airway open like they extubated somebody but their airway is so inflamed that they just gotta re-intubate. and so there's certain these like what's it called hyper hyper i'm not sure what, what it's called but where tons of swell up and you need emerging intubation i don't need i don't know that word i forgot what it's hypo, hypo hyper or something i don't know but it's where it time to swell up and you need a lot of kids have it. Okay. Where they need emergency intubation at the hospital because it just closes up and then they deal with it with antibiotics. Um, but yeah, so a lot of times it's number numbers based. And like you said, the person might feel fine, might be fine, but their numbers are just crummy. So we're just like the best thing for us to do is just intubate you and let's have we'll breathe for you. Yeah. Just to get those numbers better. <clears throat> and the
0: equipment that you need at the bedside, so one of them is you need an ECG. So either if you're in the ICU, they're already hooked up to the monitor where you're evaluating their heart rate, or you have them, you have the crash card next door. You put on the lead. so you have that available, right? Right. You need consistent monitoring, consistent yeah.
1: cardiac monitoring. Yeah,
0: that's one. You need an oxygen saturation. You have to find that out. Um, another device you need. You need an end tidal CO two. Like you have to find out what the what the end tidal CO two is after you intubated to make sure you actually in the lungs. Mm-hmm profusing properly right sometimes right. if the entitle is not above is it 30 35 to 45 is, is the normal entitle? yeah that's okay yeah so anything above 30 you're like okay we're in the lungs yeah. if you have a bad number there's probably something's up
1: and a line that's like an iffy one i know you talked about it they, they do inlines for you yeah usually when we intubate somebody we just you know thumb an a line because i do work on a cardiac floor so usually if we're intubating their cardiac, issues, their cardiac health is probably going to shit as well with, yeah. with their breathing. So we usually like to throw an A-line in them. But a lot of times in ICU here, we, we already have A-lines in them. Okay. So that's convenient. Or we throw a central line in them because you can't really give certain drugs peripherally for a continuing amount of time, like your, your pressers and stuff. So we either central line, give them a central line bedside or like an A-line, Yeah. something like that. A-line is yeah. doesn't happen too often for us. But they should
0: definitely have some kind of a... Peripheral, least some peripheral, peripheral access. Oh, you need one. You yeah, need one. N-
1: n- no, else you can do. That's, yeah.
0: that's 100, guys. You need at least like a 22 gauge in there because you, you're going to be pushing heavy-duty medications prior to the intubation. Mm-hmm. So you need something for the intubation process. And you also need a bag mask. So yeah. you got a bag on prior to the procedure usually. Sometimes the intensivist or whoever is intubating is having a difficult time, and they might give the patient a break because they're de too low. And you're gonna bag them for a little bit, bring their sets back up to 100%, whatever the case might
1: be, and then try again, you know. Yeah. Right, and then usually they bring their own go scope. I know you guys call it a. I call it a GlideScope. Okay. So, same thing, you know, just so for. Or they, or they call it a Mac blade. Mac blade. Yeah, just something so a resident resident or an the can can see where they're going down into the throat because you know they have their own markings that they know in in like the in like the, uh, like the airway. That they, that they go by i'm not sure what, what they are i know somebody would do, do with adam's apple and stuff like that but but they have their own marking that they pay attention to when when they go down and actually intubate yeah. somebody and we have like with the blades we have
0: like a little camera hooked right. up to it so they're kind of looking on the side to visual the um the vocal
1: cords before they stick the tube yeah and then a, then the et tube itself probably a few different sizes because you're not sure how con- constricted the airway is
0: yeah I've been, I've been i see a lot of 7.5 et
1: tubes yeah. by working uh Older population. Yeah, I 7, yeah, seven point five is basically yeah. what I see almost all the time too.
0: And let's not forget about the suction. So sometimes you have to have those difficult airways where you're suctioning. Um, there's a lot of secretions. You can't visualize what's going on. Sometimes there's blood, and worst of all, if there's like vomit, like if the patient's aspirating, like that's the worst because you see all this yeah. like stuff in the cords, man. And, and there's a risk for aspiration, like like eighty percent of the time. Like you know, those people are going to be on on the vent for a while on antibiotics because. They're gonna get pneumonia.
1: Yeah, and someone to secure the ET tube as well because there's been times where, respiratory therapist has they they have their own clip that they that they use to you know secure the ET tube in place. But sometimes the thing the thing cracks because everyone's yeah. you know kind of frazzled. So at least have some tape on you. you. At least tape it to their to their cheek or just tape it somewhere so so it stays. Mm-hmm. And then probably like like an NG tube just so you could put that down afterwards. There, yeah. Afterwards, yeah. And
0: at that point, it's called an OG tube OG because tube, it's sorry. going through the mouth, guys. Yeah, yeah. good point. Good point indeed. Uh, let's talk about the process. Like we so, said guys, we're cereal today.
1: We are cereal. Cheers to that. Let's have another drink in between this. We should have a drink every time we say a full sentence. <laughs> well, we wouldn't make it. It's about to be cereal with milk pretty soon with this, man.
0: We're also thinking about a podcast episode to talk about the side effects of alcohol. And just kill a quick six-pack on the show. That's to be determined yeah. when that's Or some happening.
1: more of these. Or some Jack. You know, a lot of carbs on a six-pack of beer. Yeah. I'm not sure how much carbs Jack has. We'll tell you for the alcohol, episode. we'll break it down. <laughs> exactly.
0: All right, so the process. Um, usually, there's going to be like a diagnosis or somebody's going to be like, okay, we're intubating. And if it's um, if you're calling calling a rapid response, then you already know what's going on. The patient's already in respiratory failure. And we're not going to talk about the intubations when the patient is roles in because that's that's regular. Yeah. So let's talk about just emergent. Usually, the intensivist says something's going on. You would see some signs that's saying, hey, we need to intubate. And we need to prepare. Um, depends on what's going on. Usually I like to prepare the room for whoever's intubating, right? Yeah. So I'll undo the brakes and I'll push the bed back a little bit, get that set up, and then usually the nurses know what's going on, they could help. Right. But if not, we gotta gather all the equipment, which we talked about.
1: Yeah. So if the patient is conscious, you should definitely explain what is going on at first, just so you know, you know, you lay him flat and then bang they got a tube down their mouth. You wanna explain, hey, hey George, we're gonna intubate you're not doing so too good. If they can sign a consent, I consent have want sign a consent or, or at least like you know explain what's going to happen Be like hey It's George. A, it's an emergency more than yeah, likely true it's- that. True that. So what I like you said you know move the bed up a little bit so there, there's some walking room remove that headboard lift the bed up a little bit like a little bit above the hips and just so everyone's you know at a, at a comfortable you know there's some short residents or shortness so they just make them make them comfortable. Yeah. But make the patient comfortable too Be like hey we're going to give you some medication you're going to feel drowsy you're going to fall asleep. You know, you might wake up with a tube down your mouth. It might be uncomfortable. trying yeah. trying to bite down. And you, or you might not even remember the, us doing this. Yeah. But it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So you, you definitely need you need a respiratory therapist,
0: someone that's in charge of the airway. You're going to have your intensivist slash resident or whoever doctor that's going to be doing the procedure. I know a girl in Canada. Shout out to you, whoever told me this in Canada. Respiratory therapist in Tibet. That's awesome. I, I would definitely love to have one on the show to yeah. talk about that. And after that, you need... A nurse that probably just is getting supplies right and usually a lot of people like to stand by and watch because like what the heck's going on and the last person is the person that pushes the meds right. and I've, i like to do that a lot and that's where the rapid sequence um, intubation kit comes in place you like to draw up all your meds usually i'll ask the doctor before the procedure hey what do you like um we could well we're going to talk about the meds but usually some Versed or fentanyl I'll draw that up into syringes. So don't forget, guys, you need some saline flushes because you have to push the meds. And you need some um, empty syringes with some 18-gauge needles not to waste your time and just pull back right away. Um, And what I like to do is because you sometimes have three, four different kind of meds, usually three in the kit, I like to, let's just say, draw back on the medication and then tape the medication to the the syringe just so I know what I'm pushing. Because sometimes with all that's going on, you don't know what you're gonna push, and sometimes you could push the wrong med.
1: Yeah, what I like to do with that meds is um, sometimes I tape them, sometimes I don't. I'll, I have them in alphabetical order. So okay. from left to right. So, if I have fentanyl versus I would fentanyl on the left and averse on the right in, in my hand. And what I also like to have is I used to have myself and two other nurses. So, like Matt said, one is ideal for supplies, but usually they're, they're crowding around you. So, there's already always a handful of nurses standing out there. But, like Matt said, one for the supplies at least, and then one for the meds. And then me as a nurse, since Malik's pushing meds, I prefer to just look at the vitals like, hey, he's he's sitting down, let's you know, try this again, let's extubate him real quick or, or move our move the tube out of there and it'll give him some some few um pumps of of the bag. Or you just say, hey, he's getting tacky or he's now an SVT, let's try and try with it. Because as a an anesthesia person or the resident, their main focus is just the airway, they're just trying to get the YouTube, but they're not looking at the photos, they're looking at the pressure you're. Someone has to look at that stuff yeah. because they can't be looking at, at, at everything because that's too much too much work for one yeah. person. I think they've been pushing for like
0: um, during the rapid response, there's one leader. So one leader is in charge of the situation and he's making aware of what should be done. Yeah. Usually sometimes like to wear the tags and she's the one that's going to be like, okay, guys, hey, he's satting like 60%. Let's bag him a little bit just to kind of let the resident or say, hey, 40% sats just so that doctor can make the call, not you. True. Same thing if you're pushing the meds, right? You want to be very verbal. Hey, doc, I'm pushing uh, five over said now. Okay. Like in heat, just so everybody knows what's going on and not like, oh, I thought you did this. No, I didn't do it. Like everything is verbal.
1: Communication is just flaw. Yeah. It's got to be straight verbal. Like you can't assume anything is done. Just like a code, you know, like you can't assume it's been 2 minutes someone has to say hey it's been 2 minutes pulse check yeah and you can't assume the meds has been, been given or what meds have been given Someone's actually got to say hey push in versat, push in fent cuz there's no way of, of telling and everyone's focused on one specific job and that's what that's what how it's efficient is everyone's yelling out what they're doing but not at all at the same time obviously and everyone's just focused on their their thing one person looking at vitals meds pushing meds then anesthesiologist intubating and then you know the third nurse is getting a, a smaller uh, and, and
0: and you have those like intubations or rapids that are very, very like unorganized and you can tell when it's an unexperienced nurse or maybe you're on the floor and you can tell there's just not enough communication or just someone's not doing this or... You intubated and where's the end title? Like, what's going on? Like, you know, and it happens, guys. And that's how you get better as a team or people on your unit, just through these experiences. Exactly. Yeah, and
1: once they're intubated, maybe they want to throw an A-line in. So you can grab your A-line stuff, have somebody grab it for you or your, your central, central line stuff. And then you also want to make sure that the cuff is inflated. Because I've had a few times where the cuff wasn't fully inflated, and the ET tube ended up being like dislodged or not dislodged mm-hmm. for me, but I've seen it being dislodged for somebody else. But it's got repositioned. And then, you know, the patient's just standing. You're like, damn, I got to call anesthesia again. And sometimes the cuffs, even though they're not supposed to, you know, they're supposed to work properly. Some of them are actually, you know, like popped. Like you try and inflate it and you can't inflate it. I had so a then you got like yeah. And then you got to extubate and then re- reintubate them again. Yeah, that's my
0: little bedside story about that. Mm. Um, and let's not forget after the ET tube goes in and all the drama happens, we always want to check breath sounds bilaterally. I'll do that always even though like doctors do it or sometimes ask me and then always which is the gold staple is that chest x-ray yep. you want to confirm placement make sure it's above the cr- uh, crina right mm. you don't want it to be in the
1: right stem or something and not ventilating properly right yeah and then get your drip set up because that's you know, another one you pushed but there's there's half of these drugs they're gonna start waking up eventually it doesn't matter if you give a hundred a vent, you know, for a big guy, he's just like gonna wake up eventually. So yeah, you, they're gonna start bucking the vent.
0: The t- you're gonna hear a bunch of alarms going off. You're gonna, he's gonna start waking up, try pulling and you know, yeah. going crazy. And you want to put those little floaties, little, uh, some people in uh, in their ICU, they restrain, just so you're protecting that airway and you're
1: protecting him from extubating himself. Yeah, usually I just throw them under restraints. Once they're, they're intubated, I just throw them under restraints because you're never really sure how someone's gonna react when they start waking up. You might think they're snowed one minute and you leave to to you know get something real quick. You come back and they're you know moving around. They're upside down in the bed. You're like shit. I should put them under restraints. So you about put them on restraints right away and then discontinue them a little bit later on once you know they start opening their eyes or you know they start following commands a little bit. You know, ras score is, starts to improve a little bit. Then you can take out the restraints. And then of course if you know they start you know thrashing or trying to pull their vent, put the, the restraints back on. Well, that's what they're for. And
0: you can't trust your patient. Like they said they're not gonna pull the tube and. You know, they're all sincere on the tube, and you took the floaties out because they'll yank it, man. I had a, had a lady that
1: did it too. She was like 29. Young lady, man, just fucking yanked that shit out yeah. like at 2 a.m. Exactly, and then they got reintubated the whole process. Mm-hmm. Over again. So now we'll get into the drugs. So you obviously need your sedation. The most common sedation drugs you can use is, is Versed. And this is in the RSI kit, guys? Yes. Or Well, for us, it's we have it in the unit, but uh, a lot of our residents and anesthesia like to bring their own meds. Okay, cool. Because they kind of – they usually – Sometimes they drum up themselves, sometimes they just bring vials, just because uh, they're not sure what kind of unit they're going into or how experienced the nurses are, so they just prefer to grab it just because it's a little bit more efficient for them. That's what they prefer. Uh, So like sedation, so it's going to be your Versed, your Fent, um, Atomidate, sometimes we use Propofol, but the ones I see most is usually give give Versed and um, Versed and Fentanyl. That's Mm -hmm. usually the combo that we give, like either 5 of Versed and 50 of Fent, or over sad and twenty five FN. That's probably the the most common one. Those are the big ones,
0: and like and th- the physician will base it on what's going on. If they're hypotensive, they're probably not gonna want to do too much versed or fentanyl because that's gonna affect them. And they're gonna go the paralytic
1: route and do like sucks. Yeah, things like yeah. So their paralytics, like Matt said, sucks. So but you gotta be careful. Paralytics, the person person is paralyzed. You know, so you kind of do want to sedate them a little bit because you know they can't move. So imagine if you didn't sedate somebody. And, oh, they're, they're paralyzed. Right. But you're completely with it. That's probably the scariest shit in the world. Yep. It's probably so scary. I mean, I, I probably would freak out. i will probably be traumatized, man, if I'm paralyzed and not sedated at all. They give them a little bit of sedation. You know, yeah, they might be impotensive, but give them, like, at least a little, a little bit of something. Yeah. Another uh, parallax, out that, that I guess people use are, there's, like, a ro rocorium, anything with, with an EM. That's more in the... Yeah. In the OR something. thing. Yeah, so those drugs, you need higher doses, and they don't act as quick compared to a Sox, because the most common one that we use. Dude, I remember this one time I had this guy, um, and he was an HIV patient
0: too, which made things worse because he was in full-blown ARDS. And at one point I hear like, like going on his ET tube, and I'm like, guys, I think it's cuff blue. And like the intensivist was there, and she's just like, Okay, we're going to intubate. Out of nowhere, like I'm just I just get my day started, I'm just getting my routine and check and like dude, we're intubating this guy and I'm like guys, you guys are going to have to leave the room, there's a bunch of family, there's a rabbi, all this stuff. And we're preparing the room and like long story short, you guys hear the process of intubating. What was crazy about this is like this guy was an ARDS and he was desatting so quick. Like we bagged him to 100% and the the intensivists, you know, what they do also that we don't talk about is if you're switching an ET tube one to another, they put a bougie in. So they put a metal wire. Bad and bougie, huh? Bad and bougie. They put a little metal kind of wire through here so they could take the other ET tube out and just thread it through mm-hmm. instead of using the the glidescope. Right. That makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And she had such a hard time and he da- he decided so quick in between that time, she had to take both of those things out, bag them again. Like we're going back and forth with these, with this intubation, man. Like at one point, like she was intubating and like he sat it all the way down to like 15% and she was so like this intensive, is was so stubborn about intubating him that we're like, Hey doc, like 30%, 25%. She kept trying, trying. I was like ready to fucking jump on this dude's chest. Like, I'm like, okay, we're going to frigging do compressions. Cause he's going to flatline. Like it was intense yeah it's it's a crazy story and like the worst part is, is like like you just go through like a storm of like events and afterwards you get the you get the patient nice and looking good and the chest ray comes in and the family comes in and like yeah he's intubated yeah like nothing happened and yeah nothing happened but you just for 20 minutes you're freaking you're you're sweating all over your body you know it's crazy yeah family
1: comes in yeah how was it? How did you do? How was intubation? You know, uh, it, was, it was good. You know, a little bit harder than, than always, but, you know, we got it done. He, he tolerated it well. And your ass is sweating. You know, you got sweat dripping down down your ass and you just tried for like 20 minutes trying to intubate this person. Like you said, he had a 15%. That's insane. You know, That yeah. that's like almost cardiac arrest right there. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, that, yeah, that's how it sometimes it is. I don't have any crazy stories to share because for the most part, my intubation has have been smooth. But I am not fortunate or, or unfortunate or I'm sure I'm going to have one intubation that's, that's going to come sooner or later where I'm going to... Yeah to be a fuck fest, but you know, sorry for my language, yeah, but dude, you know yeah. how it is. Now
0: we're not gonna be able to run YouTube because it's yeah. explicit content, yeah. man. Sorry. Good guys. job. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, man, like when it comes to intubation guys, like it's definitely a different experience. If you're in med surge or you see it for the first time with the ICU, it's it's crazy. And it's it's also beautiful the way we work as a team and we like save a life. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's real
1: cool. Like the one tip I, w- I would give you if you're intubating somebody, if you're not exactly sure what's going on, or this is your first intubation, like the best thing you, you could do with everybody is just keep it on the vitals. Yeah, you know, Have somebody else push the vets. Like, just keep it on the vitals. It's, it's your patient. You know how his blood pressure's been all day. You're just, keep, look at the vitals. It's, you know, Shout out, you know, systolic or drop into, you know, 90s. And just let them know. That's probably the, the your easiest thing to do is just look at the monitor. Compared to just standing there and just being like, you know, a wasteful soul in the room. That's true. You want to wrap this one up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Nice little quick cheers at the end, guys. We, this quick, huh? we have
0: to finish this, Jack. I'm almost done. Peter's kind of dragging. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode about intubations. Likewise, guys. Um, comment, subscribe. We touched about sugary drinks, how this 450,000 case study basically proves that soda is bad. Cut it out, drop it, go to the
1: fridge, throw all that out. It's bad for you. Just drink some water like normal people. Yeah, even those diet drinks. Don't use... Hey, I'm switching over from regular soda to diet soda, and that's that's your healthy thing to do. Nah, it's all bullshit too. It's yeah, just as bad, guys. And intubations—you heard about the
0: process, the procedure, what happens, tips, and just like yeah, yeah. Don't don't become an intubated patient. And if you are a nurse, nursing student, get ready for one because it's going to be a hell of an
1: experience. Exactly. Or go watch intubation. If someone on your floor is getting intubated, go watch. You go stand in the corner and, and, and watch it. Don't be afraid of it. If you're not part if it's not your patient, just go watch at least. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week. Take care. Take care you guys.